0: I'm Ray, And I'm Charlotte. And this is the Midnight Record. The Midnight Record. We're recording when it's dark. Very fitting. Very spooky. It's just going to keep getting dark earlier and earlier. I know, it's very infuriating. I don't know what you're doing, so. I know. Could be anything. I know you said, I heard the words uh, dismembered.
1: Uh-huh. I mean, that could mean anything. Yeah, really. and that could be any case,
0: <laughs> but I know, I know what we're... I know some of what we're dealing with.
1: Yeah. Um, so, this is one of our deep dive episodes. Mm-hmm. Deep, deep, deep. Deep dive episodes. Down and, to the depths. Um, it's a me-centric uh, episode this week. Yes. And, um, when I first started, re- I was saying this to Ray off mic, but when I first started researching this case, I'm going to tell you what it is in a second, I... Honestly, didn't realize that it was like as gory and mm. gruesome as I found out it found it right. out to be. Um, but today we are covering the case of Dennis Nielsen, okay, I know also known as the kindly killer. Okay, so I wanted to do we've been doing a lot of American centric or mm-hmm. North America centric. Episodes, and I want to do something across the pond. Yeah. Um, oh. And this, I uh, this is Dennis is a Scottish serial killer. Uh huh. A documentary uh-huh. just came out. Um, okay. That that David must be what i David Tennant starred in a historical fiction version of. All the events that we are going to talk yes. about last, I think came out last year. Okay,
0: so memories of a murderer, the Nelson tapes—that's mm-hmm. the Netflix one. Okay, yeah, I, t- I talked about that on TikTok. Yeah, he's um, also was in a Criminal Minds ep- inspired episode. Well, yeah, almost all of them are. Yeah. But, um. Mm-hmm. So cool. I don't know a ton about it, so this
1: would be this would be fun. Yeah. All right, so let's dive in. Yeah. Um. Also, real quick, trigger warning, like, serious, serious trigger warning, because this episode's, like, gonna be... I tried to get rid of, like... I tried to make it as, like, detailed as it needed to be, but not go, like, too into it. Because right. the details of some of his murders and the things that he did to his victims after mm. they were dead is pretty horrific and, right. honestly, gross. Yeah. So, So, uh, trigger warning... Uh, mainly gruesome stuff and dismemberment and if that is something that you can't really deal with honestly while I was researching this there were multiple times where I had to like step away for a little while because like I started getting sick to my stomach like almost throwing up Mm. that's totally fine we will catch you next week Um, but yeah alrighty here we go Dennis Nielsen was born on November 23rd 1945 in Fraserburgh Aberdeenshire also by the way We're going to be dealing with a lot of, like, shires and things and UK names because y'all like to make things super complicated. And I'm a dumb American. I don't know how to say this stuff, so I'm sorry if I say it wrong. Don't come for me. Um, (laughs) He. I'm just saying for me. I'm not calling you dumb. Uh, Just me. (laughs) uh, That's okay.
0: I can be grouped into.
1: I'm just a full on idiot. I'm part of the package deal here. Full on idiot. Um. Uh, So Dennis was the second of three children born to Elizabeth White and Olav Munkensheim, who adopted the surname Nielsen. The marriage between the between Nielsen's parents was difficult. Olav did not view married life with any seriousness, being preoccupied with his duties with the free Norwegian forces and making little attempt to spend much time with or find a new home for his wife. After the birth of their third child, Nielsen's mother concluded that she had, quote, rushed into marriage without thinking, and his parents divorced in 1948. All three of the couple's children, Olaf Jr., Dennis, and Sylvia, had been conceived on their father's brief visits to their mother's household. Her parents, who never approved of their daughter's choice of a husband, were supportive of their daughter following her divorce and were incredibly considerate of their grandchildren. Um, Nielsen was a quiet yet adventurous child. His earliest childhood memories were of family picnics in the Scottish countryside with his mother and siblings, of his grandparents' pious lifestyle, which he later described as very cold. Um... And also of being taken on long countryside walks, carried on the shoulders of his maternal grandfather, whom he was particularly close. Um, They did this pretty frequently, and he later said that he really loved this time with his grandpa because it was when they could, like, really bond Mm. together. And also, like, being the middle child, like, I'm sure he was sort of dying for attention, too. Uh, He later described the stage of his childhood as one of contentment and his grandfather being his, quote, great hero and protector, unquote, adding that whenever his grandfather, who was a fisherman, was at sea, um, life would be empty for me until he returned, Dennis later said in his life. By 1951, Dennis's grandfather's health was in decline, but he continued to work on October 31st of 1951 while, while fishing in the North Sea. His grandfather died of a heart attack at the age of 62. Psychiatrists have attributed, like, this incident um, being a huge proponent in, like, his crimes and mm-hmm. how he had abandonment issues, which led to his crimes. Right. <laughs> um, which, again, are pretty uh, unsettling, to mm-hmm. t- to say the least. Um, and after his, like, grandpa passed away, he just never really felt close with anybody else in his family. It was, like, really... He felt really alone. And he had attachment issues because of it. So, in the years following the death of his grandfather, Dennis became quiet and withdrawn. At home, he seldom participated in family activities and retreated from any attempts by adult family members to demonstrate any affection towards him. Nielsen grew up to resent what he saw as the unfair amount of attention his mother, grandmother, and later stepfather... Play, displayed towards his older brother and younger sister. Dennis envied Olaf Jr.'s popularity. He often talked to or played games with his younger sister, Sylvia, whom he was closer to than any other family member. Um, when he was a young teenager, sort of at the height of when puberty was hitting him, Dennis discovered that he was gay, which initially confused and shamed him. Um, But he kept his sexuality hidden from his family and his few friends because many of the boys to whom he was attracted to had facial features similar to those of his younger sister, Sylvia. On one occasion, he fondled her, actually, and he believed that his attraction towards boy might be a manifestation of the care he felt for her. Dennis made no efforts to seek sexual contact with any of the peers to whom he was sexually attracted, although he later said that he had been fondled by an older um, boy growing up, but did not find the experience unpleasant. Mm-hmm. On one occasion he also caressed and fondled his older brother as he slept. Um as a result, Olaf Junior began to suspect his brother as gay and regularly belittled him in public, often referring to Dennis as a hen, which is um like uh Scottish slang for a f- effeminate boy. Okay. Sort of like how you say like pansy here or uh-huh. whatever. Which bullying is not okay in general. No, it's not. Don't be mean.
0: Oh, no, Gosh, My. Dennis
1: initially believed that when he fondled his sister, that may have been evidence that he was bisexual, mm. um, but he never had any, like, long-term relationships with women in general. Um, so, I don't know. I feel like that might have been a bargaining tool for him, yeah. perhaps. At the age of 14, he joined the Army Cadet Force, viewing the British Army as a potential avenue for escaping his rural origins. Dennis informed his mother that he intended to join the army where he intended to train as a chef. Nielsen passed the entrance exams and received official notification. He was to enlist for nine year service in September of 1961, commencing his training with the Army Catering Corps at St. Omer Barracks in Haldershot, Hampshire. Within weeks, Dennis began to excel in his army duties. He later described these three years of training at Aldershot as the happiest of his life. While being stationed there, Dennis... Dennis's latent feelings began to stir, but he kept his sexual orientation while hidden from his colleagues. I also believe at this time, um, in the UK, it was illegal, um, to be gay still. Wonderful. So, yeah, um... I think, yeah, 61, I believe, that the, the laws hadn't changed. So he had to be closeted just like a lot right. of other queer people. So um, yeah. i
0: very thankful to not grow up then.
1: Well, 61 was literally six years yeah. 60 years six ago. Years six ago. years ago. <laughs> what? Uh, um, si- <laughs> 60 years ago. That's nothing. Yeah,
0: that's literally, I mean, five years before my mom was born.
1: And only six years ago did the Supreme Court here say that it was against literally the Constitution to, like, not allow anybody to get married to whoever they want? Right. It's crazy. Well, I mean, just, like, no incensed, but, right. Like, right, right. you know what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, let's... There is a line to be drawn. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: Absolutely not. Dennis never showered in the company of his fellow (laughs) soldiers for fear of developing an erection in their presence. Instead, opting to bathe alone in the bathroom, which also afforded him the privacy to masturbate without discovery. In this deployment, uh, Dennis began to increase his intake of alcohol. He described himself and his colleagues as the, quote hard-working, boozy lot. His colleagues recalled he often drank in excess in order to ease his shyness. Um, In one instance, Dennis and a young German man, while he was um, stationed in Germany, drank themselves into a stupor. When Dennis awoke, he found himself on the floor of the young German man's house. Um, No sexual activity had occurred, but this incident fueled... Dennis's sexual fantasies, which initially involved his sexual partner, um, typically a young, slender male, being completely passive. This is going to be very important yeah. later. These fantasies gradually evolved into his partner being unconscious or dead. On several occasions, Dennis also made tentative efforts to have his own Chrome body sexually interfered with by one of his colleagues, and in these um, scenarios, whenever he and his colleagues would drink to excess, Dennis would pretend he was inebriated and hope that one of his um, colleagues would make sexual use of his supposedly unconscious body. Unlike his previous postings, Dennis had his own room while he was stationed in the Middle East in Aden. This afforded him. The privacy to masturbate without discovery more consistently. He developed his fantasies of sex with an unresistant or deceased partner um, even more so but those were left unfulfilled and Dennis compensated by imagining sexual encounters with an unconscious body as he masturbated while looking at his own pro-new body in the mirror. Interesting. This guy is very particular about what Gets him off. Right. Clearly. And it's just concerning. It's right. incredibly concerning. Yeah, just and, a little bit. And rightfully so. Um, <laughs> on one occasion, Dennis discovered that by using a freestanding mirror, he would create a effect whereby if positioning the mirror and his hand was out of view, he could visualize himself engaging in a sexual act with another man. Um, To Dennis, this ruse created the ideal circumstance in which he could visually split his personality. I'm speaking about (sighs) masturbating. I'm I'm masturbating. Rude. Don't you know? To Dennis, this ruse created an ideal circumstance in which he could visually split his personality. And these masturbatory fantasies, uh, Dennis alternatively envisioned himself with both the domineering and the passive partner so he's the switch Mm, Uh, Fun. (laughs) these fantasies gradually involved to incorporate his own near death experience with an Arab taxi driver Um, long story short like he got into trouble while he was stationed Um, he was like physically hurt badly and um, I believe he was also like robbed as well Um, so with that experience, also the dead bodies he had seen in Aiden and the imagery within a 19th century oil painting entitled The Raft of Medusa. So with all of this combined, it encouraged and really honed in on what he was like attracted to, I guess. I don't really know how else to explain it but the raft of medusa is a uh oil painting that's actually really beautiful but it depicts an old man holding a limp new body of a dead mm. um dead boy as he sits beside the dismembered body of another young man um i think the lighting i mean like the subject matter is very yeah, concerning but now. the lighting in it is like really beautiful yeah um i love that like sort of i love that like gothic style of art in Dennis's most vividly recalled fantasy, a slender, attractive young blonde soldier, which, remember, looks like his sister, mm-hmm. um, who had been recently killed in battle, was dominated by a faceless, gray, dirty gray-haired old man, who would then wash the body before engaging in intercourse with a spread eagle corpse. When Dennis completed his deployment in Aiden. He returned to the U.K. and was assigned to a new regime. Months later, the regiment was transferred to West Berlin, where Dennis had his first sexual experience with a woman, a sex worker whose services he solicited. He bragged about this sexual encounter to his ta- colleagues, apparently, like, constantly, mm. um, but, later fa- but later stated he found intercourse with a woman both overrated and depressing. Yeah. Tell us how you really feel, my guy. (laughs) That is true. Tell us how you really feel. Uh, In January of 1971, being reassigned to serve as a cook for a different regiment in the Shetland Islands, where he would then end his 11-year-long military career at the rank of corporal in October of 1972. Um, Between October and December of 1972, Nielsen lived with his family as he considered his next career move. On more than one occasion In the next three months uh, Dennis lived in Shrichton and his mother would Constantly voice her opinion as To her being more concerned with His lack of female companionship Than his career path and of her Desire to see him marry and start a family mm-hmm. On one occasion Dennis joined his older brother Olaf Jr. his sister-in-law And another couple to watch A documentary about gay men All pro- all who were present viewed the topic with derision, except Dennis, who ardently spoke in defense of gay rights. Um, a fight ensued in which Olaf Jr. informed his mother that Dennis was gay, and apparently they like beat the shit out of each other. Mm. Good. Um, Dennis never spoke to his older brother again and maintained only sporadic written contact with his mother, stepfather, and younger siblings. He decided to join the Metropolitan Police and moved to London in December to begin the training course. So in April of 1973, Dennis completed his training and was posted to Wilston Green. Uh, He was still a cadet and a junior constable. He performed several arrests, but never had to physically subdue a member of the public. Um, Dennis enjoyed the work, but really missed the camaraderie of the army. Um, he began to drink alone in the evenings. During the summer and autumn of 1973, Dennis began frequent, frequenting gay pubs and engaged in several casual liaisons with men. He viewed, these as sto- he viewed these encounters as soul-destroying liaisons in which he would only lend his partner his body in vain search for inner peace as he sought a lasting relationship. Again, this, like, goes all into this whole, like, abandonment problem that mm-hmm. he has. In August, following a failed relationship, Dennis came to the conclusion that his personal lifestyle was at, was at odds with his job. His birth father had died that same month, le- leaving each of his three children a $1,000. Oh, sorry. A thousand pounds. Deepest apologies. Big difference. <laughs> I know. Very big difference. The conversion rate. Mm-hmm. Um, in December... Dennis resigned from the police force. So he was only, like, in the Metropolitan Police for a little over two years. Mm-hmm. So in November of 1975, Dennis encountered a 20-year-old man named David Gelichan being threatened outside the pub by two other men. Dennis intervened in the altercation and took David to his room at 80 mouth Road in the Crickleworth Cricklewood district of North London. The two men spent the evening drinking and talking. Dennis learned that David had recently moved to London from get this name Weston Supermare Somerset. Where is this at Weston Supermare Somerset. Well wow. mouthful.
0: Weston Supermare Somerset.
1: <laughs> Five times, so, yeah. <laughs> um, and he also learned that David was gay, unemployed, and resided in a hostel. The following morning, both men agreed to live together in a larger residence. And Dennis, using part of the inheritance bequeathed to him by his father, immediately resolved to find a larger property. Several days later, the pair viewed a vacant ground floor flat at 195 Melrose Avenue, also in Cricklewood, and they decided to move onto the property. Uh, this property will very soon become a house of horrors. Mm. Prior to moving into Melrose Avenue, Dennis negotiated a deal with the landlord whereby he and David had exclusive use of the garden at the rear of the property. So it's sort of like... um brownstones that you see in BK that have yeah. just like a like a long like a patch yeah it's like it's like the size of my room essentially right, like a patch of grass or whatever. Yeah, it's like oh nature yeah. um wow <laughs> the most you can get in the city <laughs> right um over the following months Dennis and David redecorated and furnished the entire flat mm-hmm. I know. Much of this work was performed by David as Dennis, having discovered David's lack of employment ambitions, began to view himself as the breadwinner breadwinner of their relationship. Mm -hmm. Dennis later recollected that he was sexually attracted to David, but the pair seldom had intercourse because, you know, David's alive. Um, (laughs) Spoiler alert, this guy's a necrophile, I, necrophiliac.
0: I was kind of getting that vibe.
1: Yeah, no, he definitely is. Um, Spoiler alert, it's gross. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Initially, Dennis experienced domestic contentment with David, but within a year of their moving into Melrose Avenue, the superficial relationship between the two men began to slow- show signs of strain. They slept in separate beds and they both began to bring home casual sex partners. Um, David later insisted that Dennis had never been violent, violent towards him, but he did engage in verbal abuse and the pair had begun arguing with increasing frequency by early 1976. Dennis later stated that following a heated argument in May of 1977, he demanded that David leave the residence, um, David would later state that he had chosen to end the relationship. Dennis formed brief relationships with several other young men over the following 18 months. None of these relationships lasted longer than a few weeks and none of the men expressed any intention of living with him on a permanent basis. By late 1978, Dennis was living a solitary existence and he had experienced at least three failed relationships In the previous 18 months. And he later confessed to having developed an increasingly... Increasing conviction that he was unfit to live with. Um, Throughout 1978, he devoted an ever-increasing amount of time to his work. And most evenings he spent consuming spirits and or a lager as he listened to music. So, like, the snowball effect is happening. He's Mm -hmm. got abandonment issues... He has this saying about a passive partner, potentially dead. Um, And and the biggest issue is that he, he has this um, strange attachment to people who he loves them. He loves the most are dead Mm -hmm. like his grandfather. Right. Interesting. So his brain starts being a little bit rewired between 1978 and 1983, Dennis is known to have killed a minimum of 12 men and boys and to have attempted to kill seven others. He initially confessed in 1983 to have killed about 16 victims, but it really only ended up to be about 12. Um, Most of Dennis's victims were homeless or gay men. Others were heterosexual people he typically met when he was out and about, Um, all of Dennis's murders were committed inside the two North London addresses where he resided in the years he is known to have killed. Mm. His victims were typically lured to these addresses through the offer of alcohol and or shelter. Essentially, he's preying on people who Need. need help. Right. Um, so, inside of Dennis's home, the victims were usually given food, alcohol, then strangled, um, typically with a lig- ligature, either to death or until they became unconscious. If the victim had been strangled into unconsciousness, Dennis then drowned them in his bathtub, his sink, or a buff- bucket of water before observing a ritual in which he bathed, clothed, and retained the bodies inside of his residences for several weeks or occasionally oh months before dismembering them. Oh my them. God, please. Yeah. So each victim killed between 1978 and 1981 at his Melrose Avenue residence was disposed of via burning upon a bonfire because he had that like nice outdoor area. Right. Um, prior to their uh, dissection, if you will, uh, Dennis removed all of their internal organs, which he disposed of either beside a fence or, ...behind his flat or close to Gladstone Park near his apartment. The victims killed in 1982 and 1983 at his Muswell Hill residence um, were retained at his flat and their flesh and smaller bones were flushed down the toilet. Dennis admitted to engaging in masturbation as he viewed the new bodies of several of his victims... And to have engaged in sexual acts with six of his victims' bodies, but was adamant, this is what I was saying earlier, Mm -hmm. he never penetrated any of the victims. Mm. Um, Later, he'll say, um, I have it in here, but he'll say something like, uh, they were too pure and to be, like, soiled by the gross act of sex or something like that.
0: Weird.
1: Yeah. Um... All right, so this next section, um, we're going to be going over all the victims that were killed in 195 Melrose Avenue, and then we'll move over to the rest of his victims. So,
0: okay, here yep. we go. Yep.
1: Uh, Dennis killed his first victim, a 14-year-old boy named Stephen Holmes, on December 30th, 1978. Holmes encountered Dennis at the Cricklewood Arms pub where Holmes had unsuccessfully attempted to purchase alcohol. Right, because right. you're literally a child. Right. <laughs> According to Dennis, he had been drinking heavily alone on the day he met Holmes before deciding in the evening that he must at all costs leave his flat and see company. Dennis invited Holmes to his house with the promise of the two drinking alcohol and listening to music, and he originally believed that he was around 17 years old. That's still a go. Right. Um, <laughs> my God sure. mm. yeah, yeah, Doesn't blossom. <laughs> yeah it's just um, bleh, bleh, bleh. at Dennis's home, he and Holmes drank heavily before they fell asleep. The following morning, Nielsen woke up to find Holmes asleep on his bed. In his subsequent written confessions, Dennis stated that he was afraid to wake him in case he left me. After caressing the sleeping youth, Dennis decided Holmes was to stay with me over the new year, whether he wanted to or not. Mm. Reaching for a necktie, Dennis straddled Stephen as he strangled him into unconsciousness before drowning the teenager in a bucket filled with water. Dennis then washed the body in his bathtub before placing... Holmes on his bed, caressing his body. So this is why he's, like, called the kindly killer because he treated his victims' bodies after they had died with, like, died with like such I mean before you know dismembering them right. um, with like such care like he always washed them. Mm. He always you know put like underwear and like socks on them. Dennis masturbated twice over the body while awaiting the passing of rigor mortis to enable him to stow the corpse beneath his floorboards. Holmes's bound corpse remained beneath the floorboards for almost eight months. What? Eight months. Before, Dennis built a bonfire in the garden behind his flat and burned the body on August 11th of 1979. Quote, I eased him into his new bed beneath the floorboards. A week later, I wondered whether his body had changed at all or had started to decompose. I disinterred him and pulled the dirt-stained youth up onto the floor. His skin was very dirty. I stripped myself naked and carried him into the bathroom and washed his body. There was practically no discoloration and his skin was pale white. His limbs were more relaxed than when I had put him down there, unquote. Reflecting on his killing spree, Dennis later stated that having killed Holmes, quote, I caused dreams which caused death. This is my crime, unquote, adding that he had started down the avenue of death and possessed a new kind of flatmate. Okay. On October 11th of 1979, Dennis attempted to murder a student from Hong Kong named Andrew Ho, who he had met at St. Martin's Lane Pub and lured him into his flat on the promise of sex. Dennis attempted to strangle Ho, who managed to flee from his flat and reported the incident to the police. But when the police questioned Dennis about what had happened, um, Andrew decided not to press charges because again, being gay is just too hard. And I just, I don't, I think, I think he, he had said like, I didn't want to like come out and I didn't want my employer to know. Mm. And like all these things. So yeah. So two months after the attempted murder of Andrew on December 3rd of 1979, Dennis encountered a 23-year-old Canadian student named Kenneth Ockenden. I got that right. Who had been on a tour of England visiting relatives. Uh, Dennis encountered Kenneth as they both drank in a West End pub. Upon learning that the young man was a tourist, Dennis offered to show Kenneth several London landmarks. An offer, Kenneth accepted. Great. Dennis then invited Kenneth back to his house on the promise of a meal and future drink. Dennis was adamant that he could not recall the precise moment he strangled Kenneth, but recalled that he had strangled the youth with a cord of of his own headphones as Kenneth listened to music. He also recalled dragging Kenneth's body across the floor with the wire wrapped around his neck as he strangled him before pouring himself a glass of rum and continued to listen to music on the headphones with which he had strangled Kenneth. The following day, Dennis purchased a Polaroid camera and photographed Kenneth's body in various suggestive positions. He then laid Kenneth's corpse spread eagle above him on his bed as he watched television for several hours before wrapping the body in plastic bags and stowing the corpse beneath the floorboards. new favorite place On approximately four occasions Over the following weeks Dennis would take Kenneth's body out From underneath his floorboards And seated the body Upon his arms chair Alongside him As he himself watched TV and drank alcohol Like apparently he would be watching Like a comedy show and like Dennis would be like Laughing and be like
0: look it's so funny Like like treating it as if it was Like a live person Mm -hmm. That's fucking crazy
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i mean it's 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 so creepy because like later on in his trial they try to use you know the mentally insane you know situation uh for the defense but he wasn't insane like Mm -hmm. he just was sick in the head yeah he was fully aware of everything that he was doing you know right it's cognizant, of yes, that. Dennis killed his third victim, 16 year old Martin Duffy, on May 17th, 1980. Duffy was a catering student from Birkenhead, Merseyside? side M E R S E Y S I D E, Mercy Side, Mercy Side, Mercy Side, something like that. Well, close oh. enough. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying my best here who had hitchhiked to London without his parents knowing on May 13th just a few days previously after being questioned by the British Transport Police for evading his train fare. For 4 days, Martin had slept near Euston Railway Station before Dennis encountered the young man as he returned from a union conference in Southport. Um Martin, Dennis would later recall, was both exhausted and hungry and happy, happily accepted Dennis's offer of a meal and a bed for the evening. After Martin had fallen asleep in Dennis's bed, Dennis fashioned a ligature around his neck, then simultaneously sat on Duffy's chest, tightening the ligature with a great force. Um, Dennis held his grip until Martin became unconscious. Then he dragged the young man into his kitchen and drowned him in his sink before bathing the body, which he recollected as being the youngest looking I've ever seen. Mm, Great. And now dead, so. Martin's body was first placed upon a kitchen chair, then upon the bed on which he had been strangled. The body was repeatedly kissed, complimented, and caressed by Dennis. Both before and after he had masturbated upon, while upon, while sitting upon the stomach of the corpse. Oh God! Yeah, for two days, uh, Martin's body was stowed in a cupboard. Before Dennis noted signs of bloating, therefore he went straight under the floorboards. Unquote. Okay. Which I'm like, great
0: bloating. <laughs>
1: Yeah. This is only the third victim, right. by the way. Like, he ver- But, like, he very clearly has this pattern... Right. ...going on. Um, following Martin's murder, Dennis began killing with increasing increasing frequency. Before the end of 1980, he killed a further five victims and attempted to murder one other. Only one of these victims, whom Dennis murdered, 26-year-old William Sutherland, was ever identified. Dennis's recollections of the unidentified victims were vague, but he graphically recalled how each victim had been murdered and just how long the body had been retained before dissection. Inevitably, the accumulated bodies beneath Dennis's floorboards attracted insects and created a foul odor. odor.
0: Imagine
1: that. Yeah, go figure. Particularly throughout the summer months, because Ugh, obviously. Hot. Um, hot Dead flesh. Right. Um, wonderful. On occasion, when Dennis took out victims from beneath the floorboards, he noticed that the bodies were covered in pupae and infested Ew. with maggots. Some victim's head had maggots crawling out of the eye sockets and mouths... He placed deodorants beneath the floorboards, spraying insecticide about the flat twice daily. But the odor of decay and presence of flies remained. In late 1980, Dennis removed the bodies of each victim killed since December of 1975, so almost like a full year of bodies, and burned them upon a communal a, and burned them upon a communal bonfire he had constructed on waste ground behind his flat. To disguise the smell of burning flesh of the six dissected bodies placed upon this pyre, Dennis crowned the bonfire with an old car tire, So, like, the smell of the burning rubber Mm -hmm. would, like, cover up. Yeah. Which I never knew that that was really a thing at all.
0: Now we do!
1: Now here's sort of... Hopefully
0: we won't ever need to use that.
1: Uh, Certainly don't. (laughs) And I'll probably forget about it very soon to be out. Well, hopefully. I don't know if I'll forget about any of this, honestly. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, you're going to be texting me at, like, 3 o'clock in the morning and be like, what have you done to me? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Can't get it out of my head. I'm going to have
1: some weird dreams.
0: Very weird dreams.
1: So. Here we go. Here's, here's, like, a really fucked up part about this whole, like, bonfire thing. Is that three neighborhood children stood to watch this particular bonfire, um, And Dennis later wrote in his memoirs that he felt it would have seemed in order if he had seen these three children dancing around a mass funeral pyre. Like, so kids are literally witnessing, like, unknowingly, but, like, multiple, like, multiple bodies. It's just... And how he found, like, how, like, some sort of, like, sick joy in it, Mm -hmm. in a weird way. It's... Gross. He's a sicko. So Gross. Around January 4th of 1981, Dennis encountered an unidentified man whom he described as investigators as an 18-year-old blue-eyed young Scot from the Golden Lion Pub in Soho in London, and he was lured to Melrose Avenue upon the promise of partaking in a drinking contest. Now, obviously, Dennis is a proper drinker at this point, and drank him under the table yeah pretty quickly by that point of course he has his mo he strangled him with a tie and then placed the body beneath the floorboards um dennis is known to have informed his employers that he was ill and unable to attend work on january 12th um in order so that he could dissect both his victim and another identified victim he had killed approximately one month earlier Hey there, I'm Tara. And I'm Jessica. And together we co-host the podcast Three Spooked Girls. If you love the paranormal. Or murder. Join us on Mondays for full-length episodes where we discuss our favorite paranormal stories and true crime cases. And join us again on Thursdays for our mini called Stabby Snippets where we tell you all about true crimes happening in the news. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever the hell else you listen to your pods at. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by using the handle at Three Spooked Girls. Come and hang out with us and get your spooky on while we scare the hell out of you.
0: The three girls.
1: By April, Dennis had killed two further unidentified victims, one of whom he described as a English skinhead whom he had met in Leicester Square and the other he described as a Belfast boy a man in his early 20s approximately five nine and height oh my god same um, whom he had murdered sometime in February in relation to the first of these three identifi- unidentified victims he would later casually reflect end of the day end of the drink end of a person floorboards back carpet replaced back to work on Denmark Street okay It was, like, at this point, it was, like, sort of, like, part of his daily routine, which is just, like... Just another day. Jeez, it's just insane. The following month, Dennis removed the internal organs of several victims stowed beneath his floorboards. So, typically, he would remove the, like internal organs first Mm. and then he would slowly start to like dissect the bodies um which honestly i have to say is like pretty smart because like intestines are going to burst first Mm. and make a bigger mess um he discarded these innards both upon the waste ground behind his flat and in his household rubbish the final victim would be to be murdered at Melrose Avenue was 23 year old Malcolm Barlow, whom Dennis discovered slumped outside slumped against a wall outside his home on September 17th, 1981. Um, apparently what had happened was Malcolm had epilepsy. He took too much of his medication that day and it caused his, um, legs to weaken. And so he just had like fallen over and he like mm. physically couldn't get up. uh, Dennis suggested that Malcolm should be hospitalized and was supporting him, walked him to his residence before phoning for an ambulance. The following day, Malcolm was released from the hospital and returned to Dennis's home, apparently to thank him. And of course he was invited in and after eating a meal and drinking rum and Coke before falling asleep on the sofa, uh, Dennis then strangled Malcolm as he slept before stowing his body beneath his kitchen sink the following morning.
0: So he literally, like, saved him, and then the guy came back to thank him and killed him for his thanks.
1: Yeah. Oh, sweet. That's fucked. So fucked. It's like, geez, like, let the guy live. Seriously. In mid of 1981, Dennis's landlord at the time decided to renovate 195 Melrose Avenue and asked Dennis to vacate the property. Dennis was initially resistant to the proposal, but accepted an offer of a thousand pounds from the landlord to vacate the residence. He moved into an attic flat at 23d Cranley gardens in the Muswell Hill district of North London on October 5th, 1981. Now, uh, the day before he vacated the property, Dennis burned, the dissected bodies of the last five victims that he had killed at this address upon a third and final bonfire he constructed in the garden behind his flat. Again, Dennis ensured that the bonfire fire was crowned with an old car tire to disguise the smell of burning flesh. Now, here's the problem about... Well, there are lots of problems with right. everything. <laughs> yes. But here's the problem about his new apartment that he's about to move into. Mm-hmm. At 23 Cranley Gardens, Dennis had no access to a garden, and he had an attic flat, and he would be unable to stow any bodies beneath his floorboards. Right. Um, the only- because, like, the only way it worked at Melrose Avenue is because underneath him is the ground, so if there was mm-hmm. any, like, leakage- Right. It would just seep into the ground. Right. Um, and Logistically, it worked out. Yeah, but, like, here, it's- that's not- that's not how it's gonna work, apparently. So, all of a sudden, he's, like, he's, like, fuck, like, now I have to figure out how I'm gonna start doing this all over again, which, honestly, maybe he just should have stopped at that point. But, like, jokes, as with all serial killers, they don't know when to stop, so- For almost two months, any acquaintances Dennis encountered and lured to his flat were not assaulted in any manner, although he did attempt to strangle a 19-year-old student named Paul Nobbs on November 23rd of 1981, but stopped himself from completing the act, Mm. you know, because self-restraint. In March of 1982, Dennis encountered 23-year-old John Howlett while drinking in a bar near Leicester Square. Um, Howlett was lured to his flat on the promise of drinking more drinking again. They, There, both Dennis and John drank as they watched a film before John walked into Dennis's front room and fell asleep in the bed, which was located in the front room it was at the time. One hour later, Dennis unsuccessfully attempted to rouse John, then sat on the edge of the bed drinking rum as he stared at John before deciding to kill him. Following a struggle, Dennis strangled John into unconsciousness. With an upholstery strap On three occasions f- Over the following ten minutes Dennis unsuccessfully attempted To kill his victim after noting He had resumed breathing Before deciding to fill His bathtub with water and drown him Uh For over a week following John's Murder Dennis's own neck Bore the victim's finger impressions There was like a serious Struggle mm. um With John, and I mean, he really overpowered Dennis, and Dennis had to, like, had to, I don't remember how he, what story he made up, but he made up a story about, to his employer, about why he he had literally a handprint around his neck. In May of 1982, Dennis encountered Carl Stoder, a 21-year-old gay man, at the Black Cat Pub in Camden which is honestly my favorite part of London. It's gorgeous. Yeah, I
0: like Camden a lot. I love Camden. It's so
1: fun. Um, Dennis engaged Carl in conversation, discovering that Carl was depressed after a failed relationship. After applying the youth with alcohol, Dennis invited Carl over to his flat, assuring his guests he had no intention of sexual activity. I'm just going to murder you instead. Yeah,
0: and then maybe do some sexual
1: activity. Yeah, either. but you just won't know. You, you won't, won't know. You, you, don't need, You're you don't need... you peacefully sleep. Yeah, you don't need this body after all. The a very long sleep. I need your body. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> at the flat, Carl further consumed alcohol before falling asleep upon an open sleeping bag. Open sleeping bag. He later awoke to find himself being strangled with Dennis loudly whispering, stay still. Oh my God. In his testimony at Dennis's trial, Carl stated he initially believed Dennis was trying to free him from the zip of the sleeping bag before he returned to a state of unconsciousness. Then he vaguely recalled hearing water running before realizing he was immersed in the water and that Dennis was attempting to drown him. After briefly succeeding in raising his head above the water, Carl gasped the words, No more, please, no more. Before Dennis again submerged Carl's head underneath the water. Like true torture.
0: Yeah.
1: Not okay. Believing that he had killed Carl, Dennis seated the youth in his armchair, then noticed noted that his dog Bleep. He literally had a dog named Bleep. Bleep? Yes, B L E E P.
0: Huh. Dennis had a dog
1: mm-hmm. this whole time. Mm-hmm. Oh. Crazy, right? Yeah. Um licking Uh, he noted that his dog bleep was licking carl's face and dennis realized that the tiniest thread of life was still clung to carl's body and so he started rubbing carl's limbs and heart to increase circulation covering carl's body in blankets then laid him upon his bed when Carl regained consciousness, Dennis embraced him and he explained to Carl that he almost strangled himself on the zip of the sleeping bag and that Dennis had resuscitated him. Because, you know, what a That's great guy. Sweet. Over the following two days, Carl repeatedly lapsed in and out of consciousness. When Carl had regained enough strength to question Dennis as to his recollections of being strangled and immersed in cold water, Dennis explained that he had become caught in the zip of the sleeping bag following a nightmare and that he had placed him in cold water as you were in shock hmm.
0: uh-huh makes sense uh-huh. adds up
1: this poor guy carl like at his at dennis's trial was so fucked up from this whole experience sure. for the rest of his life like yeah. And actually, when he was like recounting everything that happened to the judge, the judge had to, to tell him like multiple times, like, young man, you need to compose yourself. You need to compose yourself. Because uh-huh. he was like shaking and like crying. Right. It's so yeah, traumatic. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, how awful. Um, so Dennis then led Carl to a nearby railway station where he told him that he hoped they might meet again before he said goodbye. Dennis was promoted in June of 1982 to the position of executive officer in his employment. And he encountered a 27-year-old named Graham Allum, or Graham, as they they say across Mm. across the bun. Because, you know, I know things. I watched Downton Abbey. (laughs) I have never seen that. (laughs) What? It's So good. Um, Attempting to hail a taxi in Shaftesbury Avenue. Alan accepted Dennis's offer to accompany him to Cranley Gardens for a meal and had been the case with all of his other victims. Dennis stated he could not recall the precise moment he strangled Alan, but recalled approaching him as he sat eating an omelet with the full intention of murdering him. Alan's body was retained in the bathtub for a total of three days before Dennis began the task of dissecting his body upon the kitchen floor. Dennis is, again, known to have informed his employers that he was ill and unable to attend work on October 9th, 1982, likely in order so that he could completely dissect Alan's body. Um, And that's like as investigators were going through all the paperwork and everything, Mm -hmm. they were finding that any time that Dennis took time off... It was a correlation of a death, essentially. And sometimes it was just a day. Sometimes it was a couple of days. um, Sometimes it was a week. But it all sort of, like, lined up. Mm -hmm. On January 26, 1983, Dennis killed his final victim. Thank God. 20-year-old Stephen Sinclair. Sinclair was last seen by acquaintances in the company of Dennis walking in the direction of the tube station. At Dennis's flat, Stephen fell asleep in a drug and alcohol induced stupor in an armchair as Dennis sat listen- listening to the rock opera Tommy. Uh, Dennis approached Stephen, knelt before him, and said to himself, Oh, Stephen, here I go again. Before strangling Stephen with a ligature constructed of a necktie and a rope, following his usual ritual of bathing the body, Dennis laid Stephen's body upon his bed, applied talcum powder to the body, then arranged three mirrors around the bed before himself lying naked alongside the dead body. Several hours later, he turned Stephen's head towards him before kissing the body on the forehead, saying, Good night, Stephen. Yeah. Dennis then fell asleep alongside the body. As had been with the previous case of both Howlett and Allen, Stephen's body was subsequently dissected with various dismembering parts wrapped in plastic bag and stored in either a wardrobe, a tea chest, or within a drawer located beneath the bathtub. These bags were used to seal Stephen's remains and were also sealed with the same crepe bandages that Nielsen had found on his wrists. Dennis attempted to dispose of the flesh, internal organs, and smaller bones of all three victims killed at Cranley Gardens by flushing their dissected remains down his toilet. In a practice which he had conducted upon several victims killed at Melrose Avenue, he also boiled the heads, hands, and feet Mm. to remove the flesh of these sections from the victims' bodies. On February fourth of nineteen eighty-three, Dennis wrote a letter of complaint to estate agents, complaining that the drains at Cranley Gardens were blocked. I wonder why. I wonder why, and the situation for both himself and the situation for both himself and other tenants at the property was intolerable. The following day, he refused to allow an acquaintance to enter his property. The reason being, he had yet to. To dismember Stephen's body, which was laying on his kitchen floor, oh, um, this guy literally like, how thick in the head do you have to be? He literally essentially got himself caught because one, he's a dumbass, and two, he literally called to complain about a drain problem that he, that he caused directly by putting caused.
0: Flush and shit, bones, yeah.
1: yeah, like finger bones and things. Oh, Dennis's murders were first discovered by. Dino Rod employee Michael Cataran who responded to the plumbing complaints made by both Dennis and other tenants of Cranley Gardens on February 8th of 1983. Upon opening a drain uh was coming. Mm-hmm. Upon opening a drain cover on the side of the house, Cataran discovered the drain was packed with a flesh-like substance and numerous small bones of unknown origin. Cataran reported his suspicions to his supervisor, Gary Wheeler, and as Cataran had arrived at the property at dusk, he and Wheeler agreed to postpone investigation into the blockage until the following morning. Prior to leaving the property, Dennis and another fellow tenant, Jim Alcock, convened with Cataran to discuss the source of the substance. Upon hearing Cataran exclaim how similar the substance appeared to be human flesh, Dennis replied, It looks to me like someone has been flushing down their Kentucky fried chicken. Oh, not quite. At 7.30 a.m. the following day, Cataran <laughs> and Wheeler returned to Cranley Gardens, by which time the drain had been cleared. This aroused the suspicions of both men. Catarine discovered some scraps of flesh and four bones in a pipe leading from a drain, which linked to the top flat of the house. To both Catarine and Wheeler, the bones looked as if they had originated from a human hand. So both men immediately called the police, who upon further inspection, discovered more small bones and scraps of what looked like to the naked eye, either human or animal flesh, in the same pipe. These remains were taken to the mortuary at Hornsley where pathologist David Bowen advised police that the remains were human and that one particular piece of flesh, he concluded, had been from a had been from a human neck bore a ligature mark. Upon learning from fellow tenants that the top floor flat from where the human remains had been flushed belonged to Dennis, Detective Chief Inspector Peter J and two colleagues opted to wait outside the house until Dennis returned from work. When Dennis returned home, DCI Jay introduced himself and his colleagues, explaining that they had come to inquire about the blockage in the drains from his flat. Dennis asked why the police were interested in his drains, and also whether the two officers present with Jay were health inspectors. In response, Jay informed Dennis that... The other two were also police officers and requested access to his flat to discuss the matter further. The three officers followed Dennis into his flat, where they immediately noted the odor of rotting flesh. Mm. Dennis questioned further as to why the police were interested in his drains, to which he was informed that the blockage had been caused by human remains. Dennis feigned shock and bewilderment, stating, "'Good grief, how awful!' In response... Good grief. grief. Goodness gracious. (laughs) In response, Jay replied, Don't mess about. Where's the rest of the body? Dennis responded calmly, admitting that the remainder of the body could be found in two plastic bags in a nearby wardrobe, from which DCI Jay and his colleagues noted the overpowering smell of decomposition emanated. The officers did not open the cupboard, but asked Nielsen whether there were any other body parts to be found. To which Dennis replied, it's a long story. It goes back a long time. I'll tell you everything. I want to get it off my chest. Not here. At the police station. He was then arrested on suspicion of murder before being taken to Hornsley's police station. As he was escorted to the police station, Dennis was asked whether the remains in his flat belonged to one person or two. Staring out the window of the police car, he replied 15 or 16 since 1978. That evening, uh, Detective Superintendent Chambers, accompanied by DCI James Bowen, to Cranley Gardens, where the plastic bags were removed from the wardrobe and taken to Hornsley Mortuary. One bag was found to contain two dissected torsos, one of which had been vertically dissected, and a shopping bag containing various internal organs the second bag contained a human skull almost completely devoid of flesh a severed head and a torso with arms attached but hands missing both heads were found to have been subjected to moist heat in an interview conducted on february 10th dennis confessed that there were further human remains stowed in a tea chest in his living room and other remains inside an upturned drawer in his bathroom The dismembered body parts were the bodies of three men, all of whom had been killed by strangulation, usually with a necktie. One victim he could not name, another he only knew as John the Guardsman, and the third he identified as Stephen Sinclair. He also stated that beginning in December of 1978, he had killed 12 or 13 men at his former address, 195 Melrose Avenue. Uh, Dennis also admitted to having unsuccessfully attempted to kill approximately seven other people who had either escaped or on one occasion at the brink of death had been revived and allowed to live at his leave his residence. Further search for additional remains at Cranley Gardens on February 10th really uh, revealed a lower section of a torso, two legs Stowed in a bag in the bathroom, a skull, a section of a torso, and various bones in a tea chest. That same day, Dennis accompanied police to Melrose Avenue, where he indicated that the three locations in the rear garden where he had burned the remains of his victims. So, under English law, the police had only 48 hours in which to charge Dennis or release him. Assembling the remains of the victims killed at Cranley Gardens on the floor of Hornsey Mortuary, Professor Bowen was able to confirm the fingerprints on one body matched those of police files of Stephen Sinclair. At 5.40 p.m. on February the 11th... My birthday. Mm -hmm. Dennis was charged with Sinclair's murder and a statement revealing uh, this was released to the press. Um, Formal questioning of Dennis began that same evening. Police interviewed Dennis on 16 separate occasions over the following days in interviews, which told over 30 hours, which I believe that new Netflix documentary is, like, based off of. Dennis was adamant he was uncertain as to why he had killed, simply saying, I'm hoping you will tell me that. When asked his motive for the murders, he was adamant the decision to kill was not made until moments before the act of murder. Once the victim had been killed, he typically bade the... You know, the victim's body shaved their hair from their torso to conform to his physical ideal and then applied makeup on any obvious blemishes on the skin. The body was usually dressed in socks and underwear before Dennis draped the victims around him as he talked to the corpse. Um, As I previously said, with most victims, Dennis masturbated as he stood alongside or knelt above the body um, and Dennis confessed to having occasional engaged sect- sex acts with his victims' bodies, but he repeatedly stressed to investigators that he would he would never actually penetrate his victims, explaining that his victims were too perfect and beautiful for the pathetic ritual of commonplace sex.
0: Interesting. He's
1: very it's interesting like the
0: way he puts it.
1: He's so descriptive with his language. It's very interesting. Yeah. He also stated um, that by masturbating near his victims, it was sort of like a fond farewell for them. Oh, how fond. I know. So kind.
0: How nice. Sweet. So kind.
1: All the victims' personal possessions were destroyed following the ritual of bathing their bodies, to so obliterate their identity prior to their murder, and they're now becoming what Dennis described as a prop in his fantasies. In several instances, he talked to the victim's body, as it remained seated in a chair or prone on his bed, and he recalled being emotional as he marveled at the beauty of their bodies. When questioned as to why the heads found at Cranley Gardens had been subjected to moist heat, also horrific. Here we go again
0: with the moist heat.
1: <laughs> Too much moist heat. Dennis stated that he had frequently boiled the heads of his victims in a large cooking pot or on a stove in order to, in order that the internal contents evaporate, thus removing the need to dispose of the brain and flesh. The torsos and limbs of three victims killed at this address were dissected within a week or so of their murder before being wrapped in plastic bags and stowed in three locations he had indicated to the police. So like, unlike, uh, melrose avenue where he could like constantly take out the body and like look at it and do whatever couldn't do that here so he had to be like a faster like turnaround time essentially yeah um he did tell the police that the internal organs and smaller bones were flushed down the toilet uh this practice which had obviously led to his arrest had been the only method he could consider To dispose of the internal organs and soft tissue, as unlike at Melrose Avenue, he had no exclusive use of the garden on the property. Um, So at Melrose Avenue, Dennis typically retained the victim's body for a much longer period of time before disposing of the remains. He kept three or four bodies stowed beneath the floorboards before he dissected any of the remains. So, like, at any time, he typically had three or four bodies, which honestly, like, part of me is thinking, like, how did he get these people back to his apartment and they weren't like, this place smells like a, like a dead body?
0: Right. right. Did they think he was just a smelly guy?
1: And like, with the flies and stuff? Right.
0: Like, I mean, or and- were they that inebriated
1: that? Like, literally, nobody was like, this is weird. I should leave. I don't want to
0: be in this stinky place. Even. And I'm, I'm
1: not trying to, like, blame them, of course. But it's just, right. like, I've, I'm curious. Well, I'm curious of
0: their, like, mindset or, like, what they were thinking. Yeah. Or like, if anybody even, like, said anything at any point. Or, like, if you, like, made up a story.
1: So, when I was, uh, researching this, this was the part that was making me sick to my stomach. So, I'm gonna try to go through it as quickly as possible. Here we go. Um... Dennis recalled that the putrefaction of these victims' bodies made this task increasingly vile. He recalled having to fortify his nerves with whiskey and having to grab fistfuls of salt with which to brush aside maggots from the remains. Often he vomited as he dissected the bodies before wrapping the dismembered limbs inside plastic bags and carrying the remains of the bonfires. Nonetheless, immediately prior to his dissecting of the victims' bodies, Dennis masturbated; he knelt or sat alongside the corpse. This, he stated, was again his symbolic gesture to saying goodbye to his victims. Very <sighs> qu- romantic, that guy. Very romantic, honestly, a true man of his time. One <laughs> um, question as to whether he had any remorse for his crimes. Dennis replied, "I wish I could stop, but I couldn't. I had no other thrill or happiness." He also emphasized that he took no pleasure in the act of killing but worshiped the art and the act of death. On February 11th, 1983, when Dennis was officially charged with the murder of Stephen Sinclair, he was transferred to HMP Brixton um, to be held on remand until his trial. According to Dennis, upon being transferred to Brixton Prison to await trial, His mood was one of resignation and relief, with his belief that he would be viewed in ordinance with the law as innocent until proven guilty. Because, like, this guy really thought that he could get out of it. Interesting. Like, you fucking kidding me?
0: You did. Idiot. A lot of stuff. You're an idiot.
1: Um, (laughs) Oh. On May 26th of that same year, Dennis was committed to stand trial at the Old Bailey on five counts of murder and two attempted murder. Um, a sixth murder murder charge was eventually added later on initially dennis had intended to plead guilty to each charge of murder upon his upcoming trial but when dennis was brought to trial on october 24th 1983 um to be tried before mr justice Croom johnson what a stately name Mm -hmm. um dennis pleaded not guilty to all charges also during this time he was like on strike at the prison he was being held at like he would not wear clothes um and at one point he like threw his like chamber pot at one of the guards because like he was like these conditions are deplorable it's like maybe don't Don't, do shit to land yourself in jail
0: don't kill a bunch of people
1: yeah that's how you fix that and then, um, also there was this, like, whole back and forth thing with the lawyer that he had been assigned to. So he would fire his lawyer, then he would rehire him, then he would fire him, then he would rehire him, and then blah, blah, blah. Mm. Be like, I'm gonna defend myself. And everyone's like, no, you're not. And he's like, I am. They're like, no, you're not. Right. It was, like, very, it felt like very Abbott and Costello when mm-hmm. I was, like, reading all of it. I was like, what the hell? What is going on? What is going on here on this day?
0: On this here day. What, what's that, what's that from? <laughs> What's going on here on this day?
1: Um, Alyssa Edwards. Yes. Okay. The primary dispute between the prosecuting and defense counsel was whether or not Dennis had killed the victims, but his state of mind before and during the killings. The prosecuting counsel, Alan Green, argued that Dennis was sane and full control of his actions and had killed with premeditation. The defense counsel, Ivan Lawrence, argued that Dennis suffered from diminished responsibility rendering him incapable of forming the intention to commit murder and therefore should be convicted of only manslaughter so during the trial everything that they had found obviously all the dismembered bodies the human remains found in the drains at Cranley Gardens his detailed confession his arrest um and like how he also led investigator investigators to all the bone fragments at Melrose Avenue, um, are all trying to be turned as if this was how he was trying to conceal his crimes. So the prosecuting counsel closed their opening speech with, um, an answer that Dennis had given to police and response to a question as whether or not he needed to kill quote at the precise moment of the act of murder i believe i am right in doing the act unquote to counteract this argument green added the crown says that even if there was mental abnormality that was not sufficient to diminish subsequently his responsibility for these killings um The first witness to testify for the prosecution was Douglas Stewart, who testified that on November 1980, he had fallen asleep in a chair in Dennis's flat, only to wake up to find his ankles bound to the chair and Dennis strangling him with a tie as he pressed his knee to Stewart's chest. Um, Successfully overpowering Dennis, Stewart testified that Dennis had then shouted, take my money upon leaving Dennis's residence Stewart had reported the attack to the police, who in turn questioned Dennis. But noting conflicting details in the accounts given by both men, police had dim- dismissed the incident as a lover's quarrel. Oh my God. Um. And like, again, he had like finger marks mm-hmm. on his neck. On October 25th, the court heard testimony from two more men who had survived attempts by Dennis. Uh, The first of these, Paul Noobs, provided testimony that the prosecution asserted was evidence of Dennis's self-control and ability to refrain from homicidal impulses. As a university student, Paul testified that he accompanied Dennis to Cranley Gardens for alcohol and sex. And woke in the early hours of the morning with a terrible headache. Upon washing his face in Dennis's bathroom, as Paul noted, his eyes were bloodshot and his face was completely red. Dennis had exclaimed, God, you look bloody awful. Dennis had then advised him to see a doctor. Uh, Paul had not reported the attack to police for fear of his sexual, his uh, sexuality being discovered. Contrary to the prosecution claims, the defense counsel asserted that Paul's testimony reflected Dennis's rational self being unable to control his impulses. So I like, am assuming that he tried to strangle him Mm -hmm. in his sleep and then like stopped. And so that's why his face was all red and his eyes were bloodshot. His head hurt. (laughs) Um, Immediately after the testimony of Paul had concluded, Carl Stoddard took the stand to recount how in May of 1982, Dennis had attempted to strangle and drown him before bringing him quote unquote back to life. As I said previously, Carl's voice frequently wavered with emotion as he recounted how Dennis repeatedly attempted to drown him in a bathtub as he pleaded in vain for his life to be spared and how he later awoke to find Dennis's dog looking his face. On several occasions, the, the judge had um, had to allow Carl to time to regain his composure. Apparently the evidence provided by Carl, um, was not included as part of the indictment against Dennis as his whereabouts were not known until after the indictment had been completed. Um, then DCIJ recounted the circumstances of Dennis's arrest and his calm matter of fact confessions before reading to the court, several statements volunteered by Dennis following his arrest in one of these statements, Dennis said, I have no tears for my victims, I have no tears for myself, nor those bereaved by my actions. Jay admitted it was unusual for anyone accused of such horrific crimes to be so forthcoming in providing information, and conceded upon questioning by defense counsel that Dennis not only provided most of the evidence against himself, but also encouraged the discovery of evidence for which would contravi- contradict his own version of events. To me, it's like almost like he he wanted to get caught. Like yeah. that's why he called the Drano company to begin with, right? Um. So they recited Dennis's formal confession to the court. This testimony included graphic de- descriptions of the ritualistic and sexual acts Dennis promoted. Dennis performed with his victims' bodies, his various methods of storing bodies and body parts, dismembering and disposal, and the problems of decomposition, particularly regarding colonies of maggots, mm. afforded him. Several jurors were visu- several jurors were visibly shaken throughout his testimony. Others looked at Dennis with incredulous expressions on their faces as Dennis listened to the testimony with pretty much all indifference Mm -hmm. um also there were accounts that said that he oh that there were multiple jurors who had to like leave and like got physically ill like just listening to the confession two psychiatrists testified on behalf of the defense the first was jane mckeith um and he testified as as to how through a lack of emotion develop emotional development Dennis experienced difficulty expressing any emotions other than anger and his tendency to treat other human beings as component of his fantasies and not as like actual people. Again, this goes back into that like whole prop thing that he was calling dead bodies essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, So the psychiatrist also described Dennis's association between unconscious bodies and sexual arousal stating that Dennis possessed, narcissistic traits an impaired sense of identity and was able to depersonalize other people. Um, he stated in his conclusions that Dennis displayed many sides of maladaptive behavior, the combination, the combination of which in one man was lethal. Um, and James McKeith uh, stated that this unspecified personality disorder was severe enough to substantially reduce Dennis's responsibility. The second psychiatrist who testified was Patrick Galway. He diagnosed Dennis with borderline false self as if pseudo normal narcissistic personality disorder. That's wow. such a mouthful. I, can't yeah, I was even. about to say, um, With occasional outbreaks of schizoid disturbances that Dennis managed most of the time to keep at bay, Patrick Galway stated in episodic breakdowns that Dennis became predominantly schizoid, acting as an impulsive, violent, and anger manner. Patrick Galway further added that someone suffering from these episodic breakdowns is most likely to disintegrate disintegrate under circumstances of social isolation. In effect, Nielsen was not guilty of malice afterthought. Upon cross-investigation, Green largely focused on the degree of awareness shown by Dennis and his ability to make decisions. Galloway conceded that Nielsen had intellectually... Was intellectually aware of his actions, but stressed that due to his personality disorder, Dennis did not appreciate the criminal nature of what he had done. Which I'm like, appreciate? That's that's a word for it. Right. On October 31st, the prosecution called Paul Bowden to testify. Um, Bowden, this is the gentleman who had interviewed... Dennis on like 16 different occasions over Mm -hmm. the first couple of days of him being in custody. Mm -hmm. Um, Over two days, Paul testified Although Paul testified that although he found Dennis to be abnormal in a colloquial sense, he had concluded that Dennis had to be a manipulative person who had been capable of forming relationships, but had forced himself to objectify people. Um, Bodum further testified that he found no evidence of maladaptive behavior and that Dennis suffered from no disorder of the mind. Following the closing arguments of both prosecution and defense, the jury retired to consider their verdict on October 3rd, 1983. The following day, the jury returned with a majority verdict of guilty upon six counts of murder and one attempted murder. With a unanimous verdict of guilty in relation to the attempted murder, of knobs. The judge sentenced Dennis to life imprisonment with a recommendation that he serve a minimum of 25 years of imprisonment. So following his conviction, Dennis was transferred to HMP Wormwood Scrubs. Again, these names are so fun. Wormwood. Yeah. To begin his sentence. As a category A prisoner, he was assigned his own cell and could mix freely with other inmates in December of 1983, Dennis was cut on the face and chest by a razor blade by an inmate named Albert Moffat, um, resulting in injuries requiring 89 stitches. Mm. Um, also, there was a t- like he was constantly he constantly got the shit beat out of him like right. in, in prison. Um, it was definitely a target for sure. Mm-hmm. So the minimum term. Of 25 years imprisonment to which Dennis was sentenced in 1983 was replaced by a whole life term by Home Secretary Michael Howard in December of 1994. This ruling ensured Dennis would never be released from prison, a punishment he accepted. In 2003, Dennis was transferred again to HMP Full Sutton, where he remained incarcerated as a Category A prisoner. In the prison workshop Dennis translated books into braille. He spent much of his time he spent much of his free time write, reading and writing and was allowed to paint and compose music upon a keyboard. He was also he also exchanged letters with numerous people who sought his correspondence. I never understand those people no. like why
0: why are you chit-chatting with Hi. Unless you're doing, like, research or something, like, maybe, like, a book or I don't know, but...
1: Right. Um, Dennis remained at HMP Full Sutton until his death on May 12th of 2018. On May 10th of 2018, Dennis was taken from Full Sutton to York Hospital after complaining about severe stomach pains. He was found to have a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm. Say that five times. Which was repaired, although he subsequently suffered a blood clot as a complication of the surgery. Dennis died on May twelfth. Um, a postmortem e- examination revealed that the immediate cause of Dennis's death was pulum- pulum- pulmonary pulmonary thank you mm-hmm. pulmonary embolism and retroperitoneal hemorrhage. I say words correctly all the time. Dennis's body was cremated in June of 2018. The service was held with only five mourners present, including three prison officers and the individual with whom Dennis had corresponded with while in prison. No family members were present at the service. In line with the Ministry of Justice policy, HMP Full Sutton paid $3,323 towards the cost, Pounds. Sorry, mm-hmm. pounds towards the cost of Dennis's funeral. His ashes were later handed to his family. Interesting.
0: Yeah, I saw. I saw an article saying his death was a very painful one.
1: Yeah, he suffered. Perhaps was deserved. Yeah. But on that note, that is uh, the story of the kindly killer, mm. Dennis Nielsen. <clears throat>
0: that was fun i'm so
1: glad It was such a joy it. i'm so glad such a sweet story mm-hmm. so good
0: filled with so romance good. romance oh god
1: he's <laughs> a real piece of work uh yeah you could say that that's like that's for sure
0: so i, I yeah because i know we talk about a lot of obviously fucked up people in this podcast but like when we get to the point of like literally like is deriving sexual pleasure mm-hmm. from a corpse that's been rotting in your floorboards for weeks. That is
1: a whole new beast. Uh, like, why I wanted to do it because I was like, oh, I know that he, like, killed three guys uh-huh. and he, like, kept them in their floorboards. Like, how f- gross. Like, right. that's creepy. Like, that might be, like, a fun thing to do. I don't know. But it might be <laughs> like, just, like, super interesting. I mean. But I guess I must have just thought about his last three victims. Right not how um, deep it goes and not everything else which and honestly like montrose avenue seems like literally the worst place to live ever literally and apparently um i think uh his apartment in cranley gardens yes was up for i saw that sale a few years ago mm-hmm. and they had to say like please do your research on this place before you come and see it. Or, like, speak to our broker before you come and see it. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'll definitely be doing something slightly um, less horrific next time. Next time. (laughs) Give yourself a little break. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's do our little palate cleanser. Ray, do you have any, um, do you have any recommendations?
0: Um, I started watching... The new season of Sex Edu- Education, which mm. is a good show, the third season's out. Um it's basically like about like oops, I'm going to press play by accident. Um like British, I think they're British. British teens. Hello? Yeah, <laughs> British teens it's, and like it's a uh, show. like the sexual awakening and all those fun topics. Um and then I also started watching the second, ep- second or the third season of You. Mm-hmm. Is it good? Um, I'm on the second episode. It's starting out like a bit, it's good. It's just, it's interesting so far. I'm, I'm excited to see how it pans out. Um, and another thing that I was watching the other day that's just like a fun one is uh, Supermarket Sweep. I used to watch it when I was, like, way younger, and I, like, totally forgot about the show, and it's on Netflix now, and, uh, it's just so goofy, and it's just, I, for anybody who doesn't know, it's literally, um, like, three different teams of two, and they have to run around a fake grocery store and, like, get items and answer, like, do, like, games and stuff. It's just, like, it was, like, a, a 90s, um, Yeah, it's a reality game TV show. show. Yeah, game shows. Yeah. It's, it's, silly, but it's definitely a palate cleanser. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, well, I am watching the new Hulu series starring Michael Keaton, Dope Sick. Oh. Right now, only four episodes are out, but it is so fantastic. It is heavy though, because it has to deal with the opioid epidemic here mm. um, in America, and specifically like how uh, medical companies like paid off the FDA and just like, it's a bunch of really interesting Freaky shit. Um, um, but I did get a new book that I'm very excited, excited to read that my friend Caitlin wrote called Pumpkin Pie. And it's sort of like what happened to Cinderella like after, like mm. it's a little bit of like a modern retelling. So I'm very excited to read Fun. that. Yeah. I just, I just got in the mail last week, so I'm very cool. excited. But that's awesome. Ray, do you want to tell the good people where they can find us?
0: Yeah, they can find us uh, at The Midnight Record on Instagram and TikTok. At TMR Pod on Twitter and the midnight record at
1: gmail.com. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe on all of your favorite podcast streaming platforms. Pretty please. Um really helps us the and like feel like we love to see where y'all are from. So um, you know, if you have any local true crime mm-hmm. cases you want us to uh you want us to cover please dm us or comment on one of our posts um we i mean honestly no case is too big or too little so yeah. just send it on over and we'll take a look and yeah. we'll put it on the list so please do yes um all right well until next time i'll see you at midnight i'll see you at midnight yeah <laughs> i'm just
0: tired <laughs> the